Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Driving to the Basket, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am Mike, joined today by Sean Corp, managing editor of Detroit Bad Boys, be the number one Pistons blog on the internet. Sean, thanks for joining the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, let's launch right into it. So uh, we're going to talk about the draft a little bit. We're going to free agency, uh, talk about how we see this team or this roster coming together, and then talk a bit about summer league. So uh, listeners have all heard my uh, my thoughts on the draft, probably more than once, actually. But uh, yeah, so how did you feel? Like, let's talk. How did you feel going into the draft and, and then how the draft uh, ended up turning out for the Pistons? Well, on NBA draft lottery night, what I told all my uh, Pistons friends was I was mad that they fell to five because then we were going to have three months arguing about whether they should draft Jaden Ivey. And so <laughs> uh, told, they took Jaden Ivey. Um, obviously, he was the biggest boom or bust candidate on the board. I am not surprised he is number one on their board. I know he would have been in the top three or four of many teams drafting. Personally, I had a lot of reservations about what he could do, at least at the college level. That made me a little cautious. So I had Benedict Matherin above him on my wish list. But, you know, at some point you just have to trust that there is a lot to like about his game. And it's all about, you know, not the player he is now, but what the team thinks he can be as a player going forward. So you just kind of hope that they're right because... If it doesn't work out for him, I think it's going to be a very rough ride at the pro level, considering, you know, the things he can't quite do on the basketball court. But if he figures it out, then he's, you know, primed to be one of the two best players in the whole draft. So we're we're just going to get to see what happens along the way. And even if it doesn't work out, there'll be a lot of uh, fun highlights to enjoy. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with you on the boomer bust nature of it. I had Matherin number one also. And just because I felt like he was more likely to reach the point of high value with the Pistons, lower ceiling, definitely. Uh, but I was uh, I was happy with the selection of Ivy. Like you said, it does potentially be a very special player if he can get everything together. I think just his upside was absolutely tantalizing. And and I would say definitely at the higher ceiling between he and Matherin. There was also the matter of relief on draft night. Like, uh, I I really was not a fan of Keegan Murray. It wasn't just that it wasn't like the per- perception that oh this guy is 22 and and a role player or whatever else but uh, I mean what what did what did you thought about Keegan Murray going into the draft well part of me thought when i watch him i don't see anything special but is that just my sort of amateurish eyes where you know if it doesn't pop to you then it's very easy to think a player is not going to do anything when they can be you know very effective at the pro level and all of the, you know, analytic models were very high on his offensive capabilities. But in the end, I just could never get myself to buy into him because I don't see a high-level defender. I don't see a multi-positional person, really. And I don't think he has any sort of passing or playmaking future. Like, he's a scorer. He's going to get a lot of efficient points if it works out for him at the pro level, but he's not going to probably make his teammates better or make it easier for anybody sharing the floor with him. So it it was kind of like, to me, it was sort of like a black hole potential of an offensive prospect with not a lot of high level defensive upside as much as I did like his rebounding. 
But yeah, yeah just I, I didn't see that huge upside on either end. With Matherin, I really saw potential on both ends just because of his three-point shot, the difficulty of his threes, and his sort of projection you could make as a defensive player. And then with Ivy, uh, for me it was, uh, you know, the Pistons are trying to pick a player to play alongside Cade. And so from Ivy's perspective, I would say the Pistons were the absolute perfect spot for him. I agree. I don't know if it was the best spot for Cade because... It really depends on what Ivy can turn into as a defender. Because I really want somebody on the Pistons that can take some of that defensive pressure off of Cunningham mm-hmm. on a nightly basis. So that's kind of what I will be keyed into his rookie year is just what are his instincts like? What's his awareness? What's his commitment to the defensive end? Yeah, definitely. I thought it was cool. He said that uh, that Troy Weaver, when they'd had their first conversation, had challenged him to be a better defender. Thought that was uh, that was really cool. But yeah, going back to Murray, like my my concerns about him were largely like I agree with with everything you said, and certainly when it comes to passing. And the guy didn't have to pass at all at Purdue. I mean, people looked at uh, his low turnovers. It's like okay, the guy is engaging in low turnover forms of offense because he can't really create off the dribble because his handle is terrible. So they really rarely had him try. You know, they also never had him try to pass really at all beyond very easy passes, uh, you know, just like man to man from 10 feet away. But it was uh, also just the, the low upside I felt as a creator was just, it was a big issue for me. And uh, I, was, I just wasn't too hot on it. Also, the athleticism isn't all that great. But one of the things that I think was kind of instructive for me in comparing Ivy and Murray as prospects is it's one of the most difficult things is figuring out like, what does their college context say about how the college game is enhancing them or how mm-hmm. it's limiting them? And so with yeah. Murray, you're like, is this the best case scenario for what he can do? And all the things in the college game are kind of masking those inherent flaws. And then with Ivy, part of the upside conversation for me in that I was thinking maybe he has a, a much higher upside than even... I'm willing to admit at first was the way that Purdue ran its system. Was that really inhibiting what Ivy could do as a passer and a playmaker because the, the Purdue offense is so, you know, big post driven, even as efficient as it was, it wasn't just catered to his game. And then also uh, you mentioned his defense and, and being challenged to be a good defender. Another part of the reason that I'm comfortable taking IV and just kind of betting on that investment in him working on his game is his mom's a coach. He's around the game his whole life. As much as I don't want to fall for those intangible type arguments, I think if that's part of your mindset and your sort of work ethic, I think that does go a long way. And a lot of times with college guys, you want to just pick the guy that's going to work on his game nonstop because they're going to be sort of in charge of how good they can actually be to to try and reach their own ceiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like um I yeah, I was happy. Like I was happy on the on the on the on draft night when the pick came up. I and mean, one of the reasons I asked about Murray was like I just I had such like a palpable sigh of relief, like multiple sighs of relief. <laughs> like I I had done so much like so much draft research and just put so much time and then effort and emotion in the draft and it finally arrived. And when I when I delivered at least like my old friend of mine told me like I know what happened. Do you want me to tell you? And I said no and then I went straight to Twitter <laughs> <laughs> and, and saw Shaw from Shams, the the Sacramento Kings are selecting 
uh, Keegan Murray with number four, pick number four. I took a screen, you know, screenshot of it on the phone and you know, for posterity. And at that point, I, I, Matherum was my one A. Ivy was my one B, just for the upside. I was I was happy with Ivy, and um, you know, for what you said about the players being um, put in into position that you know that they they really need to be the ones who are going to work as hard as they can to try to reach their ceiling. And some players do that, and others don't. And it was it was very reassuring. Just to find out, it's like number one throughout the draft process that he only worked out for the Magic, who had the number one overall pick in the Pistons. See, it really clearly seemed like the guy wanted to be in Detroit, and that um, that was a big deal for me. Just knowing that, not only because it's like you know, great, he's he's where he wants to be, and um, but also because it's like, okay, you know that if he wants to come here, and that if uh, if the front office wants to draft him, that he is perfectly content playing second fiddle to Cade Cunningham. Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of the things that this draft process and kind of thinking about these prospects really laid plain was that choosing Cade Cunningham number one last year was the right call because you're looking at all these prospects and you're thinking to yourself, well, they're not going to have a problem fitting alongside Cade because Cade's game is so conducive to being, you know, integrating well with other high level players and making them better and and fitting in because he's just has such a well-rounded approach, even compared to like an Evan Mobley or a Scotty Barnes, which I know some people, you know, I don't expect any team that drafted last year to regret their pick. It's a great draft. There's tons of high level prospects, but like when you're thinking about the Pistons could have literally had anybody, I'm still glad they had Kate Cunningham because it, it like everything locks into place. They have that guy that you're trying to fit other people around and it's just going to be so easy to fit people with high skills around Cunningham that that's kind of what made me even more excited about that pick going into this year than I was excited last year. Yeah. I, I mean, last year was, <laughs> I mean, like the Pistons got monumentally fortunate to get, pick number one. I've said it many times in this podcast. I'll say it again, probably many times in the future. They got monumentally fortunate to win that lottery in what's been looking to be an incredibly strong draft. And yeah, I, I thought, I think Cade was the pick from, from beginning to end. And yeah, so I mean, the, the Pistons, you know, they've, they've got a great player on their hands who you said, yeah, can, can, can make it work with just about anybody. I was like going back to what you said about his days at Purdue. I was a little bit concerned is like, is Jaden Ivey going to be the guy who, just wants to be constantly attacking downhill with the ball in his hands is like, is he going to be better suited as a lead guard if he can get that together? But like, you know, if he's going to work with Cade, he needs to develop along certain lines with certain skills. And, and not only that fully buy in to the, to the number two guy role to not wanting to be the number one guy in his team. And it seems like that's something he's perfectly willing to do based on the fact that he wanted to come play with Cade. And in what was, I'm sure a very thorough interview process, they, they judged that he was willing to play that role. Yeah, and I think, you know, from the moment he stepped on the court as as a rookie, Cade, you know, it was his team. That was clear for all the young oh, yeah. guys. It was clear for all the veterans. And when you think about what could have happened, I think back to a couple years ago when uh, Cleveland drafted two guards high up, and they were both kind of vying for supremacy of the team between uh, Garland and... Uh, and Sexton. What's yeah. his name? Yeah, with Sexton. And it's just because there was no clarity on, you know, who's the alpha, who's the secondary, that's not an issue with the Pistons because, you know, it's Kate's team. People want to follow him. He wants to lead. 
he's going to be, you know, a high level player. And so drafting a high level person, they know how they fit. Like they know mm-hmm. there's a pecking order. There's not going to be any of those, you know, struggles for control. And so as far as their games or as far as Ivy's game, maybe he wants to be sort of a leader and that's not going to be an issue in Detroit or not going to be a possibility. I don't think it's going to cause any friction because, you know, the the lines are pretty clear, the lines of delineation. Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, it was it was kind of like a, a sort of gray area in Purdue because he was playing next to like he wasn't playing point guard. Like he was just doing a lot of attacking downhill and he did possess the ball quite a bit, but he wasn't playing point guard. And to your point about like was he enhanced or not at the NCAA playing with two centers at all times probably wasn't ideal. <laughs> but yeah yeah one of the yeah. things that most excited me about the pre-draft process was he clearly saying that he wasn't a point guard because yeah you know the draft evaluators look at his size and they want to compare him to like russell westbrook or something or john morant mm-hmm. for some reason and you know they want to say point guard and you know, i look at his tape i never for a second saw somebody that could play point guard and so i was like is you know, if the only way he can be successful is as a point guard, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. As I got deeper into it, I think some of the things that got me more onto the Jay Nivey train was I really think he can do a lot of things off the ball. And again, that's a, that's a great reason to have Kate Cunningham around because he's going to create a lot of opportunities for Ivy. That's why I think Detroit was a great situation for Ivy himself because yeah. as a cutter, and as somebody in transition and as a secondary playmaker, I think he's going to have a lot of opportunities, you know, all things considered for a rookie to really have a lot of success. Yeah. Going down to the more detailed level, like how do you, I mean, obviously this will develop organically and who knows if, you know, really what we'll see early on in the season, but how do you see uh, the coaching staff playing he and Cade together? Like as, as far as what Ivy will do alongside Cade. Like Cade if being I had fairly, guess, really ball yeah. dominant. Yeah. I, I think if I had to guess right now, I wouldn't be surprised if they brought Ivy off the bench initially until they get a better sense of what his perimeter game looks like. Mm-hmm. Just because the Pistons team's a bit of a mess from a perimeter shot making perspective. To say so, the least. <laughs> yeah, I would say that uh, it would probably be Cade and Burks in the starting lineup. And then, you know, Dwayne Casey loves his all bench units. And. This season, at least, the Pistons can, if not put out a good bench unit, they could put out a very fun athletic bench unit. So mm-hmm. I think they might kind of go in that direction and then end games, you know, if possible, with the vaunted Dwayne Casey three-guard lineup with <laughs> uh, Cunningham, Ivy, and Player X kind of on Player the X. wing running around like crazy to try and, you know, close the deal. Yeah, but uh, I mean, once they do start playing them together, I mean, so we've got Cade who's operating pretty heavily on the ball. I mean, he's a guy who's going to be the the point man for your offense. Period. Uh, what sort of actions? I mean, how do you? How would you like put it this way? If you were the coach, uh, how would you play the two of them together most effectively? Like, what what would each of their roles be? Well, to me, I think for maybe the ninth consecutive season, I want the Pistons to play faster. They never seem to actually figure out how to do it. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, if you have a, a rebounder that can, you know, kick it out to Cade and create in transition, like they have some guys that can fly down the floor. So I mm-hmm. want them to kind of create a seam for Ivy in transition to do something with the ball before the defense gets set. I think that's a lot 
one of the ways he can score a lot of easy points. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, then it just becomes hunting out a good pick and roll mismatch. I think they need to play a lot more pick and roll than they have been. Uh, less pure motion because I don't think they have really the bodies for it. And I just want to see sort of them still relying on Cade to create most of the offensive looks and using Ivy as sort of that multi-screen guy who can try and get open and just, if not open, make the defense overreact and create a, a secondary option for Cade or for Ivy when he gets the ball. Because I think his athleticism can really shift what the defense is able to do in ways the Pistons haven't had. And that can create looks for some of the more limited, you know, athleticism players in Detroit. And then Mm -hmm. when you give Ivy the ball, you know, it's, it should all, it should be keeping it simple, trying to get him to create an opening to the lane and see if he can just do something with it. Cause he doesn't need a lot of uh, an opening to actually get, to the rim and finish at the rim. So it doesn't need to rely solely on his ability as a passer. It can just be, you know, you it's your rookie year, be a bull in a China shop, get to the rim, get to the line, create easy opportunities, get them in the bonus. Like mm-hmm. don't overcomplicate things. Yeah. So I, I think it's worth saying with noting with Ivy and worth noting in the context of this draft. And this draft is really something else in that like the consensus top five guys all had significant flaws. I mean, this whereas whereas uh like last season was just much much, much stronger. So, you know, I, I think it deserves to be said with Ivy that there may be there may be some growing pains. I mean, he's got more to adjust to at the NBA level than than Cade did. Uh do you do you agree with that? And if so, what uh, what do you see as is possibly the areas he's really going to need some time to work on in the NBA. Well, I think, um, you know, what do you do when somebody goes under the screen? Because that's what Ivy's going to see all the time. What are you going to do when the team is so bad from the perimeter that you have multiple defenders with a foot in the paint at all times? How does that negate Ivy's pure athletic advantage against his opponent? I think there's going to be offensive problems that this team's going to have because they don't have people that you're afraid to leave open on the perimeter. And Mm -hmm. that's going to not be great for Cade. It's not going to be great for Ivy, especially as he's learning the NBA game, you know, maybe they figure some things out and uh, you know, they've added some verticality to the lineup that I think could help Cade, Killian and Jaden Ivy see some success with big men, you know, with Duran when, they want to give him minutes and with Noel as a, uh, a finisher at the rim that they have not had. So it'll be interesting, but I think this is still going to be, you know, a bottom 10 offense and rookies aren't usually good. They're usually not efficient. Mm-hmm. You're not hoping to see sort of like a struggle like Jalen Suggs had last year, but oh, no. if he struggled not being able to, you know, rely on his pure athleticism, similar to what Suggs was unable to do last year, it, it wouldn't exactly shock me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a multi-year process. Like you're, like you said, rookies often struggle. Rookies who handle the ball a lot often struggle. I mean, uh, Ivy will be handling the ball a fair amount. And yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised and I wouldn't be concerned either if he went in and had and had a difficult season. Like you, you often see these guys get it together. You know, you're hoping to see a significant improvement in year two and then, and then further on in year three. But yeah, I mean, I'd say there could be growing pains. Like you said earlier in the episode, I mean, the sky's the limit if 
if he can really get it all together. Well, maybe not, maybe not this guy, but he can be very, I would say he's a guy who could be a number two on a championship team if he can get it all together. Yeah, I know people kind of dismiss his passing, which I think is fair because if if you were going to give him the keys to your team as the point guard, I'd have a lot of concerns. Yeah, Pistons aren't in that position. And I think about it, you know, from my limited Pistons perspective, like when I remember Rodney Stuckey trying to run point guard, he was very proficient at making the simplest reads. I think that's kind of similar to Ivy's game as a passer. He can make the pass if it's pretty obvious. Wait, wait, wait. Surely, surely the Pistons didn't try to make Stuckey a point guard though, right? <laughs> I'm afraid <laughs> they did. <laughs> uh, yeah. Even Stuckey was like, was like the, even Stuckey said that the, the Chauncey yeah. trade was a bad idea. Yeah. But if he was a shooting guard, uh, that would have gone down a lot easier. And so like, you know, he doesn't need to be John Morant as a passer if he's a secondary playmaker and scorer. So like put him in a position so he can succeed. And I think if not pleasantly surprised, I think his passing ability is not going to be as concerning as a lot of people think, because he's not going to be the point guard of the Pistons. Yeah, I, I think he'll probably, at least this is how I project it. I would say, that he'll be on the floor with the point guard at most, if not all times, unless we see some very significant improvement in this passing. I do really, I mentioned the all bench lineup. I'm very curious to see what this new injection of athleticism does for a player like Killian Hayes, who struggled mm-hmm. so mightily because he's, he's trying to make things happen on the floor as a passer that like the Pistons just functionally weren't able to execute from an athletic athleticism perspective and he has no you know shot of his own and so it's really hamstrung him obviously the only way he's going to be successful is if he develops a friggin' jump shot that's Mm -hmm. at least sub mediocre instead of downright awful but (laughs) it was bad you know as a passer he's already done absolutely amazing things and now he has you know new toys in jay nivey jalen duran nerland's noel to play with and people t- that actually are actually going to be able to finish his lobs and finish his, you know, opportunities that he's creating for them. So I, I really hope this season, as much of a struggle as it's going to be, is it allows Killian to really cement his NBA game as something that's worth, you know, investing in and developing more. I hope so. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that a little later when we talk about the roster at large. Uh, you mentioned Duran. Uh, let's let's move on to him. So Duran, of course, the second first round acquisition of the night and the one that I think made all of our heads swim because it came completely out of left field. We thought we were going to have to take on Gordon Hayward, maybe to cap down to get that pick. And in the end, all it took was the Knicks being completely desperate and making a really one-sided trade. I mean, I guess they just really wanted Jalen Brunson for some reason. So <laughs> definitely this was a good, off- this was a good off season to be a team full of money with nobody having know any money to spend because mm-hmm. as as much as the offseason was all about uh you know should they dr- should they sign Aiton or should they sign you know a high price player I'm happy to see that they took the opportunity to be patient and take advantage of the situations in front of them gets them a player like Duran who's you know I don't invest a lot of time in researching centers because typically where the Pistons you know draft with their native actual pick that's not a place where i would want them to take a center so to speak but uh you know if you thought isaiah 
Stuart was absolutely just yoked out and full of muscle. Like <laughs> Duran is an absolute insane person to be that strong and be the youngest player in his draft. And I think as much as you can nitpick what Duran's production was at the college level, he was the youngest player in his draft class. And I think that counts for a lot to be that, that successful as an 18 year old in college, I think says a lot about his natural ability. And so as a, as a rebounder and as a, a vertical rim threat, I'm very excited to have Duran on the team. Yeah, he was legitimately a high school senior in his year at Memphis. And also, like he reclassified, this would have been, if he hadn't reclassified, they would have gone through four full years of high school. This would have been an uh, upcoming season, would have been his first in the NCAA. Yeah, played under, uh, in my opinion, a very poor coach at Memphis. And so might have things that we hadn't seen yet. But yeah, a guy, a guy I would have liked at, at, at number 10 and, and beyond. Could be a project. You know, could take some time. Much prefer him to paying a guy like Aiden. So uh, what do you think we'll see out of him in season one? Because I think one of the big storylines or one of the big things to think about is like, you know, will this be like a largely development season for him in which he might not play much? Or maybe we actually see this guy put in some significant minutes this season. I think that all signs after drafting Duran point to them viewing it as a project development year strictly. And that doesn't mean he won't see minutes, but like, you don't trade for Nerlens Noel without the intention of, of rerouting him if you wanted to, you know, carve out time specifically for Duran. And they already have Stewart. Looks like they're committed to furthering his development. They still have Oldenick. You know, they have what, five players now whose best primary position is center. So mm-hmm. even though some of those players have to play out of position at power forward. There's not going to be a lot of center minutes. There's going to be, you know, spot minutes for him. Maybe if they want to inject some athleticism or just need to, you know, change the pace up, throw him out there. But I expect to see him a lot with the crews this year and just working on his game. Because again, he's 18 years old. He should be a freshman in college. He has a lot to learn. So just, you know, let him learn it at its own pace. There's there's no expectations for Duran this year. He is pretty raw, definitely. It's it's tough to know how a player like that is going to translate right to the NBA. Because, you know, he had his struggles in the NCAA and the NBA, of course, is just drastically higher level of competition than the uh, than the NCAA. Any weakness you have is going to be very, very on display and very exploited if it's an exploitable one. So, yeah, I agree. It may take Duran some time to get his feet under him. I mean, again, super young. Like, it's... He's got plenty of time. It just, yeah, there there might be some rough edges there that really take maybe the whole season to iron out, and that wouldn't be unreasonable. And I don't think that would be a bad outcome. Yeah, I would I would caution, uh, you know, just just caution people if you're, you know, maybe not to expect a ton out of during the season, and and not to be surprised if he's maybe not getting minutes at all in the early stages. Yeah, and I think some people, um, or at least. If, if there's a guard prospect, I get a little more concerned with them spending almost all their time in the G League because I think you can learn some bad habits there that are tough to break in how you're able to be effective in the G League. I think that's less common for big men. Like what he's asking, going to be asked to do at the G League level is probably going to be very similar to what he's asked to do at the NBA level. It's all about rebounding. It's all about figuring out how to be a defender. It's all about finishing, you know, at the rim. And so he can work those out, learn defense, 
build his confidence up, learn what it takes to be a pro at the G League almost all year, and he's not going to come to the Pistons when he gets those minutes and, you know, be playing out of control like some of those guards in the G League can be prone to do. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that I think he really needs to focus on, really needs to work on. And it's just, it's tough to know with Duran what is just raw and really young and what is actually issues. Like his touch at the rim is something that concerns me, just in terms of the fact that, for example, he shot like 53% on layups at, at Memphis. And like, that's my, my concern about Duran is that, like, is he going to be the guy on offense who really struggles to finish when it's not a dunk and also struggles in the free throw line? And therefore, despite being a traditional big who can't space the floor, isn't all that efficient. So that's one thing I think he could really stand to work on in the G League is just that finishing, you know, being under control, taking his time, establishing his position physically, not taking layups that are going to result in him getting stuffed. And I think that would be a very good place for him to work on it. And the G League is still much more difficult than the NBA, excuse me, the NCAA. It's much less difficult than the NBA, of course. So that I think could be a good intermediate step. And, you know, it'll be fun to see him in the G League. So, and it, I, I do want him to get time. So, like, just get run, figure out what it takes to be on the floor. So I'd rather him spend a lot of time in the G League than barely playing minutes for the Pistons. Like, again, he's 18. Let him figure it out. Yeah, I think yeah, I think he could go either way. I mean, I think he'll need to reach a certain threshold in order to stay with the Pistons. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he'll he'll play more minutes there than we expect. Yeah, it's just hard to say. But, yeah, I agree with you that I'd rather have him actually getting real minutes in the G League, but I think there are things he could really work on than also being, like what you said about players in the G League. He'll be one of the few guys who's actually playing defense there. Uh, and that, that could be fun to watch. But... Yeah, I think there are some things he could definitely work on there that would suit him better than just you know throwing him into the fire in the NBA and a player who is who's got a lot of potential but is definitely still very raw. And yeah, I don't like the Drummond comparisons; those get brought up a lot because it's like you know they're they're both really young and they're both really raw. And I feel like Drummond was kind of like just a oh look, this guy is super athletic but rough in every single way, and his concerns are does he care enough about basketball and does he have the maturity. And I don't think those are the concerns about Duran. I think the only real overlap there is that they are fairly both fairly raw offensively. Duran's much further along than Drummond was defensively. Yeah, and I would say that from a pers- like a personal player perspective point of view, like I love a center that doesn't care if they only get six sh- shots. You know, just take advantage of the opportunities given to you. Don't try and be a player that shoots fourteen times a game to get you know, 16 points because that doesn't really matter. So just, you know, I, that's why I don't spend a lot of time on prospects at, you know, center because I view them as primarily just give me a defender, give me a rebounder, give me somebody with some paint protection. And then, you know, the points will come when other players create opportunities for them. And Mm -hmm. hopefully that's the perspective Duran has. We'll see. Uh, I mean, it seems like he was a role that he was fully willing to take in Memphis, even though it squeezed him out of the offense a lot. That I mean, it, when he was squeezed out of the offense, he could get a little bit listless, though I think it was less disillusionment and more just having... To, that those are the motor concerns. It's like, how does the, does, is the guy going to be kind of the maniacally hard worker that a traditional center needs to be when he's not on the ball or like when he's not involved in a play? And I'm not too worried about that. Hopefully, he just, he just finds his ways. Uh, yeah, but from what I... From what I saw, 
he doesn't seem to be the kind of player who's just hungry for the ball. And Drummond was one of those guys, just wanted his usage, wanted his touches, wanted to score. And that was one of the things that made him so infuriating. One of the, the maturity concerns that turned out to be completely accurate. So, yeah, I think, I mean, what, what do you see as Doran's uh, the probable, you know, the, how he's going to turn out as, you know, on offense in particular? I think we can agree that he's he's got pretty high defensive potential as an inside and out guy. I mean, it'd be great if he could develop out his game. It's so hard because every big man prospect now, it's it's such a part of their development to, you know, work on a jump shot, try and expand beyond that paint area. Even if Duran just, you know, rebounded well and figured out defenses, blocked some shots, and then shot plus 65% within, you know, the painted area, that would be as good as I would want any center prospect to be and then if he can grow from there to be a competent three or competent free throw you know conversion and then also kind of develop a mid-range game i don't put any expectations for that or even a three-point shot Mm -hmm. uh that's just kind of gravy but you never know because everybody wants to be a three-point shooter now and if you can unlock a big man that can shoot threes it kind of completely changes your offense so who knows yeah, let's see. And he's got some, I think, some upside as a passer, too. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, I don't think uh, we'll, we'll skip over Gabriel Presida in, in part because I don't really know anything about him. I haven't really done any research in him. Almost certainly going to Europe. Unclear if he's going to, well, I'd say 100% going to Europe at this point. And uh, unclear if he'll play at Summer League. But uh, let's move on to free agency. So, only four significant moves in free agency, and two of them were by trade, really. So, but it was during right around the free agency period. Marvin Bagley, back to the Pistons, three years, $37 million. Uh, Kevin Knox, two years, $6 million. And then you brought in Nerlens Noel and Alec Burks by trade alongside $6 million in cash, it, an actual second-round pick, and then another second-round pick, which was absolutely a throw-in. <laughs> and the second-round yeah. pick the Pistons got back, I believe was theirs, uh, for, uh, for 2023, I think. That's correct. Or, yeah. And then the other one was... Like basically, you have to send something in a trade, and one of the things you can send is uh, is a second round. You know, is any draft pick. The most you can protect the pick is top fifty five, and this was in the Dwayne Wade trade where the where the Cavaliers sent him back to Miami, and Miami just sent back something that was not because you have to send either a pick, a pick swap, uh, cash, uh, rights to a draft pick, or a player. And so this was just basically a pick that included no cash and whatnot. Pistons had it briefly on draft night in 2019, and uh, they sent it out. They got it from Cleveland. They sent it out to Dallas in the in the Servetus trade. And anyway, uh, so let's start with the free agents. How did you feel about Marvin Bagley getting getting 37 million? Uh, it was certainly more than I expected. Uh, I guess I was naive after I expected. The Pistons to sign Diallo for a much bigger number last offseason. That maybe there's just a muted market for a restricted free agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the end, I think I'm more concerned about the years than I am the money. Just because we were talking about Durin, I think best case scenario, Durin sort of negates the need for Bagley in that third year. So you know, high end. Hopefully, he's somebody you could flip for something else. Low end, you have $12 million, $13 million. You can't really move off your books. That's not a huge deal because the cap sheet is so clean. But it's it's a lot of money to invest in somebody who's that poor of a defender and that limited of an offensive creator. Now, he did unlock something that this team was desperately you know, in search of last year, which was rim verticality. 
pressure uh, in the paint offensively to create to help create situations and opportunities for the guards. Mm-hmm. He made I just checked eighty six percent of his shots within three feet. Like <laughs> you can't get better than that, pretty much. So he's he's providing value as somebody who can convert at the rim. He just doesn't do much else, and so this is betting on upside. I don't know how much upside there is at this point, even considering his development nightmare in Sacramento. So hopefully I'm wrong and he can really grow his game. But this seems like, you know, uh, a high level athlete that will just be able to convert at the rim for a couple of years. And that's needed. I just don't know if I would invest that much money in it. Yeah, it was more than I expected. Also, again, in part based on the DLO contract, but also just the lack of any likely competition on the market like the MLE teams were not likely to spend those on that on on Bagley rather than somebody who can actually help right now and the other cap space teams you know are gonna be super interested in Marvin Bagley so it was more than I expected I think that he got extra money so that he would be on several on three guaranteed years rather than like a one plus one on lower salary so they must really believe in him yeah, like you said, he really provided something last season the Pistons needed and that they had been bizarrely lacking into that point because Weaver did not provide a vertical spacer or a strong role man from season start, which was, I think, tough on Cade. And it was very helpful for them to have a strong role man, very helpful to have a guy who could convert at high percentage in the paint because nobody else could under the other, neither of the other centers. Uh, well, not including Garza, Garza, who barely played and was not, unfortunately, not an NBA caliber player. And... So, yeah, strong finisher, strong role man, vertical spacer. And that was very good for Cade. I don't think Marvin was actually really all that good because he still couldn't space the floor, still couldn't create any offense for himself. Those things cost. and uh, But he, he did definitely did provide something they needed. It's just that in his own right, he really wasn't all that great. There was also the defense, which was horrible. Yeah, I think that, you know, Pistons fans last season were like, you know, dying of thirst in the desert when they traded for Bagley and there was just such a lack of verticality on the team that when he arrived, people think that he created a much higher level offense for the team as a whole than he did. Like he definitely provided that pressure on the rim and he definitely helped the guards create some opportunities, but it's not like all of a sudden Detroit became a top 10 offense and he gives so much back on the defensive end. I also think that he works best as a center and, and can't mm. really function as a power forward at a high level. So the fact that as the team is constructed, it seems like they're carving out space for him as a power forward pretty exclusively right now concerns yes. me. But, you know, the, the Pistons are going to be a bad team. He he creates another one of those athletic threats uh, that the team didn't have. So maybe they can turn this group of athletes into something interesting. Yeah, I would think like on on defense, I think the jig is up on him playing center. I mean, he he's a horrible interior defender, but uh, and as a half decent, like a half decent at this point defender in the perimeter, like not good, um, but not a horrible liability. So yeah, I, I view him as a a bench player primarily, even mm-hmm. you know considering his upside. Yeah, I. So I think, yeah, you can think about what his developmental issues or what of his developmental issues may have been caused by being in a nightmarish situation in Sacramento, though he definitely wasn't the most cooperative at times by all accounts, but it was a terrible situation there. You do also have to think about the injuries. Those are there. Um, though those, I don't think we're looking at anything that's particularly, that's likely to be chronic, but 
So the Pistons clearly believe in him. The front office clearly believes in him. They traded for him. It was a low price, but they traded for him and they gave him this contract. So what do you think if, you know, if you were to put yourself in the front office's shoes, what is the upside you see there? I think that they must imagine he can figure out a jump shot, which I find very, I'm skeptical of that. Um, But I don't see how he works as a high level NBA player unless he can figure out how to sink, you know, 15 feet and out at a semi-consistent basis. Cause I just don't see the defensive upside period. You know, he's going to be a plus offensive player if he develops going forward. And then you just hope to mitigate, you know, him to be partially bad on defense instead of terrible. But yeah. like, it, it has to be all about having some faith in him developing an actual three-point shot instead of like a theoretical three-point shot. So if he can yeah. figure that out at like a 35% clip and then be one of the best interior finishers, like you have something to work with there. I have my doubts, but from their perspective as an organization, as somebody that wants to invest three years in a 22-year-old player, I imagine that's what they're seeing. Yeah, I think the jump shot, I 100% agree, has to come along. In part because he's going to be playing power forward, I think. Because uh, like maybe it's a situation where he plays like at center on offense and power forward on defense. But yeah, to be a guy who's worthwhile, yeah, I think you just have to have that jump shot. I agree. He has to be that valuable offensive player. And so they must have faith in that. I would say more than 35%. I think you really just want him to be a reliable shooter when he's left open, period. He shot 19% on wide open threes last season. So he's got a long way to go. You know, if he can pull that off, cool. I think you've got potentially a good rotation player going forward. What would you think about this? Because they get uh, positing a situation in which Isaiah Stewart ends up on the bench in the long term. Like, let's say Duran develops. Do you think Stewart stays in the starting lineup or do you think they, they run him as a bench center? I think he would work best as a bench center because he has issues as a short roll passer. He still doesn't have a three-point shot, though maybe they think he can develop it. And I think center plays to his strengths and putting him at power forward maybe accentuates his weaknesses. So I'd rather see him as a bench center than a out-of-position power forward long-term. Yeah, I agree. It's For me also, it's issues not just in the short roll, but as a role man in general. I mean, Cade needs a good one of those, and Isaiah is undersized poor leaper doesn't have the greatest hands and not the greatest finisher either so let let's see let's say a, a situation in which you have Stewart on the bench and you can maybe play these two as a duo where Stewart's going to be playing center on defense and it's not ideal for Stewart to just be hanging out in the perimeter and shooting threes but um you know and that's the role I would absolutely not want him to have in, in the starting lineup because he's just going to be way too easily guarded but we can posit a situation in which Marvin Bagley is the guy running the role for the bench unit and, and able, hopefully able to shoot threes. you think that'd be a good situation with the two of those, with the two of them? I mean, I do think that the Pistons as an organization obviously saw Stewart's flaws, and that's why mm-hmm. a player like Duran appealed to them. But I think one of the things they like about him as a prospect still to this point is that he does provide some multi-position flexibility and sort of switching offense for defense on either end, depending on who his uh, front court partner is. So... Mm-hmm. If they find a good match for him in bench units and also finishing units, I, I think he could still finish games because I do like his defense quite a bit. And he could basically be uh, situationally, I could see a lot of situ- situations where they see a matchup that they want Stewart on the floor for to end games. So I think he could work with 
you know, a Bagley, I think he could work with even a Noel in certain situations if they really want to key in on defense. But I think long-term, it's just about him being a a long-term bench center if they can't really continue to grow his game in the starting lineup. Gotcha. Um, Yeah, so Bagley, I think we can say just for this season, defense, shooting, and uh, hopefully a lot of both. So uh, let's move on to Kevin Knox, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. The action never ends at DraftKings Sportsbook, especially this summer. With tons of ways to bet on all your favorite sports, you can feel your fandom and feel the heat of the season like never before. Plus, right now, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving new customers a risk-free bet of up to $1,000. That's right. Make your first bet of up to $1,000, and if it doesn't win, you'll get another shot to cash in. You can throw down on all the major action for baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Plus, with same-game parlay spreads, money lines over under some props, your betting options feel endless. That's something I'm really looking forward to is NBA Summer League. Uh, the Pistons played their first game against the Trailblazers at midnight on the 8th, midnight uh, Eastern time of the 8th. So definitely a game to look at if you like to bet on Summer League. Uh, anyway, best of all, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Make your first deposit and get a risk-free bet of up to $1,000. That's promo code TBPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Okay, so moving on to Kevin Knox. Um, my opinion... He was terrible in the NBA up to this point, and this is absolutely 100% just a, like, let's see if he has anything of that potential and try to make it. I mean, yeah, we've we've seen this with Weaver before. He signed Okafor, didn't work out. He signed Jackson, that didn't work out. Uh, You know, you just keep mining for gold until something hits. Will this one hit? (laughs) I doubt it. The team was desperate for some perimeter threat from the power forward position. So I imagine they view him as a spot minute undersized power forward that maybe, you know, camps out in the corner, shoots some threes. Maybe he continues to develop. He's still really young. I have a very low expectations for Knox as a contributor and a player. And, you know, the price is right. It's $3 million. I'm not yeah. even sure if the second year is guaranteed, but you know, even if it is, cause I think Okafor was guaranteed, like, easy to get rid of yeah basically just a swing on potential i mean knox like he had one season as a decent shooter if i remember correctly he's not an outright bad shooter but in general just a terrible nba player in his rookie contract i mean you say what you will about where he was playing and the knicks persistent struggles at really developing players and also the huge market which isn't always ideal for rookies and just young players who struggle because it's completely merciless but he was awful like yeah legitimately awful i at the same time, if you know you're going to be a bad team, which I feel like the Pistons know that their upside is probably somewhere around 30 wins, like mm-hmm. you take a swing at a young player and see All if right. putting him in a new situation and maybe those years have paid off and them figuring out, you know, a maturity level, a work ethic level to to grow their game, to try and make sure this is not their last stop. Like you just go for it. And then when it doesn't work out, you haven't really done any long-term damage. You're giving yep. a young player a shot, and and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think it was. It's a swing. It's a swing for a low price. I mean, yeah, he was terrible. That's why nobody offered him a contract. That's. That, I mean, that's why he was offloaded by the Knicks, and he was awful with the Hawks too. But yeah, it's a swing for a low price, and we hope for the best. So, uh, moving on to the other two guys, and we talked about them, you know, fairly at length in the in the last episode, but. Uh, Noel and Burks. Oh, another downside, you know, another implication of uh, Kevin Knox being signed as our fond farewell to Roddy Magruder, who was by all accounts just a great locker room guy for the last two seasons, but there's no space in the roster for him. There are 15 contracts now. 
Also, Carson Edwards, who is always going to be gone, who got paid $75,000 to play like four games, uh, helps to be an NBA caliber player. Uh, Frank Jackson, who I think just had such a bad season that they were uncertain if his good performance from three in 2020, 2021 was a blip. Yeah, why do you think Frank Jackson got let go? One, I think that you saw a big shooting efficiency surge in the NBA in general in the the you know, fanless season. Oh yeah. It's huge. Yeah. So that might've played into his bump and then he couldn't really figure it out last year. He wasn't healthy. It was just like, there was just no room. They just made, they have so many guard undersized guards already on the team that there's just no room for Frank Jackson to be another one. So, you know, speaking of the, the dearly most likely departed Magruder, like, if he stuck around and then the Pistons found themselves with a roster spot, I wouldn't, you know, we can talk about all the Kevin Knoxes in the world. I think there's space for a player like Magruder to just be a competent individual, you know, in the locker room on the practice floor. And, you know, blessedly somebody who can actually make a three point shot (laughs) for the Pistons. So, you know, if he found his way back on the roster, I definitely would not be uh, too upset about it. Yeah. And then Garza gone as well. Garza is, by all accounts, a great guy. He's a hard worker. Uh, unfortunately, being a hard worker and a great guy cannot make one overcome the terrible lack of mobility and an incredibly athletic and fast league. The guy just couldn't, had no hope of playing defense at the NBA level, really. I mean, make him yeah, switch. He, he would have to be, he would have to be a, one of the best three point shooters from the big man position in the entire NBA to have a hope of really sticking in the league. So yeah, he can keep working on a shot. He can probably find success overseas, but I, I just don't see it for him in the NBA, but we'll see. He's, he'll put the work in. Yeah. I, I think it would have been taken more than just three. I mean, his post offense didn't translate from the NCAA. I mean, he scored 10 points per game from the post at in Iowa at, in his, uh, in the senior season. And that hard, that translates for hardly anybody and it did not translate for him. So yeah, add that to his troubles running the role, his troubles as a defensive rebounder. and But it's just his defense. You make him switch. If he's in a switch situation, he's going to get burned. You make him cover ground, he'll get there too late. You make him defend the rim, he's not going to have time to get in a position. He can't jump to challenge anyway. So wish him the best. But this was the reason he dropped, almost dropped out of the draft entirely after being NCAA Player of the Year. So Noel, Alec Burks, we talked about them in the last episode. Uh, but first, I don't know as much about Noel in terms of switch defense. Uh, are you more familiar with him as a player? I know that pre Knicks years, he was a very underrated interior defender and sort of perimeter defender when he was locked in. I think he had some uh, awareness issues that coaches found very frustrating, but he has the mobility to figure it out. I think age is starting to catch up with him just a little bit in New York. And so maybe he's not that you know, high level defender he once was, but he's still a very useful veteran player who's going to positively contribute on defense. He's going to be able to convert, you know, those looks right at the rim on offense that are going to be appreciated. But I, I mean, I I don't know what his age is off the top of my head, but I think the miles are starting to catch up with him. And so he's a player that relies a lot on his athleticism to work on it as a high level defender. And so when that starts to slip, I think, you know, obviously that defense is going to slip a little bit too, but 
he's already going to be one of the best or the best, you know, interior defensive player we have. So oh, better than he's Stewart? going to find his as an interior defensive player. I think so, just because hmm. he can change shots at a level Stewart won't be able to mm-hmm. and uh, block shots at uh, at least pre New York. He was, he was very good at blocking shots. I think he struggled a little bit with the Knicks there. And I like Stewart as a defender, but more as somebody who you can kind of throw all over the place and you won't get lost. But if you actually are looking for like somebody who is going to dissuade people from attacking the rim, Nerlens, I think, does things that Stewart just can't do. Yeah, I agree with that in terms of he's a more formidable rim protector. I mean, Stewart is, is a strong rim protector like in terms of his percentage. But yeah, in terms of dissuading people from attempting it and in terms of flying in on help side defense, Stewart just doesn't have the ability to fly anywhere, unfortunately. So yeah, Noel strong, you know, strong defender. Yeah, I'd have to, I, I looked around for tape about his switch defense, but just couldn't find it. But he'll be a fairly strong interior defender, can run the role vertical spacer and Burks has some limitations on offense in terms of, you know, what he can provide beyond that, but that's fine. Burks, of course, high percentage shooter, a good, uh, good motion three point shooter. So yeah, my opinion is just that these were good one year contracts for the Pistons for veterans who can contribute. Yeah. I think that they're basically brought on to provide that level of veteran competency on both ends in ways that just the team is desperate for and that really complement the natural athletic abilities and skills of the younger players on the roster. And then that doesn't mean the Pistons are going to be good. These two guys, Burks and Noel might be good enough and show enough that they're helping while they're on the team. And then by the trade deadline, maybe they become attractive chips for just a, a lower level deal that the Pistons can flip. And, you know, if not, if they're still on the team the whole season, the team is going to, the Pistons are going to have so much cap space in the offseason and have a better sense of where their young guys are and what they need to kind of complete the building of an actual playoff contending team that you can see a situation where they let go of both of them or they hang on to one of them because they'll, they'll be on a decent contract for one more year if it makes sense. But, you know, yeah. the Pistons are not wedded to either guy. They're kind of the definition of a stopgap, competent player as a big man and as a perimeter player. All right, well, let's talk how we see this team coming together. So uh, you've got all 15 spots filled up now. Uh, you know, they've got a lot of depth, so to speak, in terms of guys who play a lot of positions. I mean, at point guard, you've got four guys between Cade, Hayes, uh, Kojo, and Saban, a shooting guard. I think a lot of these guys can play multiple positions. Ivy's probably just been playing shooting guard, but you've got him. Uh, you got Burks, Kojo, who can play there as well, and Diallo, and whatever. It's just there's there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of guys. The Pistons are going to want to get minutes, and some they may not all be able to get minutes. And yeah, but if you were, I think you might have said this earlier in the show, if you were to put together a starting five just today, uh, who would be the five guys you put on the floor? I I struggle with this because I still don't really see a player I want to call a power forward on this team. Mm-hmm. So I think right now you're starting Cade, you're starting Burks as a veteran presence that can hit a three. Then you're slotting Sadiq at small forward. You're probably putting Bagley at power forward and, and Isaiah Stewart at center and just running it out there and seeing what happens. I could also see a world where they want Noel to be a center in this lineup to help negate some of the issues. But 
because I think they're invested in Stewart, they'll probably start with him there. And then they go with a bench unit of Hayes and Ivy and the chaos that can ensue there. And then supplementing that with uh, Kelly Olenek at, you know, power forward, Noel at center, and then uh, Isaiah Livers as a small forward. And then, you know, injuries happen, people struggle. I think that Diallo and uh, Corey Joseph are players that are just going to kind of slot in as things are kind of being mixed and matched. And then otherwise people are, you know, fighting for time out of the rotation, et cetera. And uh, what if a miracle happens and Diallo comes back able to shoot? That would be a miracle. (laughs) So I don't see a high likelihood of that happening, (laughs) but I think that he's kind of, uh, he's kind of like the utility infielder of the Pistons. So He's going to just find himself getting probably a lot of minutes at a lot of different positions as Dwayne Casey tries to figure out what he has and, and which player combinations work. So I think he's still going to end up with, you know, a surprising amount of minutes, but I don't think you're slotting him into a, a guaranteed rotation role that you're committed to on the offset. I think mm-hmm. he's kind of going to slot in because other people aren't quite ready to fill the roles are struggling, you know, otherwise, whether you're talking about Ivy, whether you're talking about livers, whether you're talking about just putting them at power forward and, and figuring out what the team can do. So, yeah. Yeah. I, um, so I think there's sort of a conundrum in the starting lineup though, at the very least. I mean, if Diallo is able to shoot, I think you just start him at small forward and put, uh, and put Bay at power forward and call it a day. I think so. I think there are two, two potential lineups. I think the one that you postulated is one of those, though I think it's possible they put Kelly Olynyk out there instead, uh, instead of Bagley, who knows. But I think one lineup you could see if Ivy looks like he's ready is Caden Ivy in the backcourt and then Burks at small forward because I think the Pistons, or rather Weaver and Casey, were very emphatic on how they want to have more shooting, including more shooting around Cade. And Ivy would benefit from that spacing as well. You have Burks at small forward, you put Bay at power forward. And then I would prefer it be Nerwin's Noel for the role presence. But I think Isaiah Stewart will just be given the starting role because he already has it. Because, I, but I think there's a conundrum there, like between those two lineups. Because one of them has too little shooting, and the other one has no vertical spacer and roll man. Yeah, and I think rebounding is an issue in in both senses as well. I I think there's a lot of limitations they're going to be trying to work around. the The big question I hope is, you know, the first question for every beat writer as the Pistons kind of open summer league and throughout the offseason is. What do, you, what do you see as Sadiq Bey's primary role and who do you see as the power forward on this team? Maybe those answers are the same, but like those are my two biggest question marks because I do see Bay as somebody who has some multi-positional value and, and maybe works best long-term at power forward. I just don't know if the team sees that as the case. And then if they do see him as a small forward primarily, then what this team envisions is their power forward rotation is a, a bit of a mystery to me. It could go in so mm-hmm. many different directions. And, you know, I'm not going to say one is right and one is wrong. It's just like w- when they put this team together, what did they see as, you know, the primary power forward lineup as starter and then as the reserve? Because I think that's instructive as how they think this team kind of locks in place going forward. Yeah. I think you could easily end up at power forward. And, I think it deserves to be stipulated or noted that the Pistons will not be trying to win. So holes in 
like if they're a weak rebounding team, it's like it's not a huge deal. So you just you want to avoid certain things on the team that are just not working, like fielding a team that has way too little shooting in the starting lineup. But yeah, it's kind of like whack a mole. It's like what yeah. what fundamental critical issues are you willing to deal with because you've decided to plug a hole somewhere else? So like, do you want defense or do you want shooting? Do you want shooting or do you want rebounding? Do yeah. you want playmaking or do you want something else? Like. There's no one lineup that's going to be well-rounded. And so it's figuring out what the team is willing to live with. Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah, so I totally agree. Yeah, on this sort of team, you pick your poison, so to speak. The Pistons just don't have a complete roster. And one of those poisons you can pick, I mean, do you want to load the starting lineup with shooting? Or do you want to and then just have the bench really risk having like two shooters? Or do you want to spread the bad shooting out? Um, because at this point, if you look at the questionable shooters in the roster, you have Ivy, who's a questionable shooter right now. Who knows? I, I think he'll get it together. You have Stewart, who's an unknown. I think he'll get it together. Hayes is an unknown. Uh, Noel can't shoot. Diallo is an unknown. <laughs> you know, Knox, who probably won't see many minutes, is whatever. Lee, who probably won't see many minutes, is whatever, but he can't shoot either. So you've just got a lot of, and Bagley, of course. You know, who knows if he's an unknown as a shooter. So you might have a team that's got a lot of bad shooters. And I don't think you want to field a bench unit of like Hayes, Diallo, uh, Bagley, Noel. And yeah, I don't know. Like, let's say it's it's Livers in there. who's one more shooter, Olenek, because Olenek can shoot. Like the bench could legitimately get ugly in terms of shooting. I mean, I think what this roster has made plain is that it's going to be ugly period like they're going to be there's going to be ugly moments in the starting lineup there are going to be ugly moments in the bench lineup so it's like i think they might just supercharge the bench with athleticism and just let the chips fall and try and front load that that starting unit with some shooting just to make it palatable and so you know I think they're probably going to look at livers as their primary perimeter threat off the bench and then just load up on, on athleticism and see what happens. And then does that mean you've put Olenek on the starting lineup? Does that mean you're putting him on the bench to kind of be that secondary shooter as well? Who knows? Because like, if you don't have Olenek in the starting lineup, you really are limiting yourself to just a couple of shooters. Because I think one of the players maybe you didn't mention is an iffy perimeter threat is Cade. Like I, I believe in shooting long-term, but he did yeah. not convert at a high level. And so this is just going to be an ugly, ugly year, I think for this team's offense. And you're just trying to see glimpses of what all these players can become. And you're hoping that the lack of shooting and efficient offense doesn't hamstring their actual development as players, because I think that could become, an issue as well yeah uh yeah you you want to ideally not bring these guys up even the young guys as in an offense that has no spacing it's no spacing rather that's a big problem we saw what happened with cave last year i think cave will get it together i mean this was kind of a blip for him after how strong he was as a shooter at Oklahoma state and yeah I, i just i think he'll get it together i think last season I don't know why it was rough. He was definitely extremely inconsistent as a three-point shooter, even after his, his overall play improved. But yeah, I think the Pistons are just you know hoping to goodness that Hayes improves as a shooter and that either Bagley or Diallo can get it together. Olenek is the interesting one because you've basically got to kick somebody out if you want to get Olenek in there. 
be that be that DLO. I think I don't think Corey Joseph is going to really play unless somebody gets injured, and I think he's fine with that. But I would see them maybe running out to line up like a bench lineup of like assuming it's. I think it's sort of interchangeable in the starting lineup. You got those three guys: Ivy Burks and, and Bagley. I mean, those are your two of those guys will be in the starting lineup. But even if you're running a bench unit of let's say Hayes, Livers, Olenek, I don't know, maybe. Diallo, uh, wait, because you got to fit Bagley in there somewhere. I don't know. This is just where it gets ugly. <laughs> yeah, it just, it's. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's. Are you building the starting unit because you have a specific bench unit in mind, or do you just sort of build a primary starting unit and let the chips fall where they may with that bench unit? I don't know, but it's going to be a not. It's not going to be pretty from an offensive perspective, and. You know, we'll just see if athleticism can kind of help be a, a salve over those primary shortcomings. And then also, I think, as you mentioned, there are players who long term, they have shots who the team thinks will develop, whether mm-hmm. it's Livers, Cade. Uh, I think they're invested in Hayes right now. He has a long way to go. I think they're invested in Stewart right now. He has a long way to go. But like sometimes it just clicks into place. And so if they can just take one of these guys and they kind of have a shot that's ahead of schedule, I think it, it does a lot to mitigate some of these concerns. But I don't think you can ever bank on any 22-year-old player, 21-year-old player being a 45% shooter from three or even a 40% shooter from three. And so it's just going to be sort of a, a grit your teeth and just let them play through these growing pains. And, and hopefully next year you have a much better sense of what you need. You have a much better sense of what you have. And these players have, you know, developed shots that are more consistent going forward by the end of the season. Yeah. Um, Livers, I think showed his shooting very well at, at U of M and, and was promising last season in limited time. So I think he can provide that at least. I mean, yeah. Bagley, I'm almost, no. I'm afraid I'm banking too much of this team's offensive competency on a second year, second round draft pick. But like right. livers just seems such like a plug and play competent person that, you know, he could be really somebody that unlocks the bench unit and unlocks the offense to a degree. But I think it's just unfair of me to, to put those kind of expectations on him. So I'm, I'm fully prepared for him to show what he showed last year and then taking that next step. And I'm also fully prepared for him to just have a sophomore slump and not really have it together. And, and both versions are okay. Cause what he showed last year is just somebody worth investing in kind of for a number of years. So hopefully his game just continues to develop. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Uh, I think he's going to be a reliable year role player for years to come. I mean, who knows about in certain postseason and whenever that is postseason situations, I think kind of his sort of slow feet may make him a little bit of a liability. Like if he's up against a super quick lineup, but that's years in the future. Yeah, it's just like the rotation is so bloated, kind of. It's it's going to be very difficult to find a significant number of minutes. Like if all if all these players are healthy, it's going to be difficult to find a significant number of minutes for all of them. So yeah, definitely even amongst that list of likelies, which I will say the guys who are almost certain to get minutes, Cade, of course, uh, Burks, Hayes, Stewart, whatever, you guys all know the list. There will be a couple of the young players who just there will be no minutes for. At least like Diallo might not get minutes. 
Uh, Wivers might not get minutes. Olenek, who knows? You know, it's just, it's going to be, if it gets really ugly in terms of shooting, we could see the rotation kind of turning over a couple of times during the season. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's going to be, I think that it could get so ugly that Corey Joseph is like a break glass in case of emergency, competent three point threat that fans will again see much more of than they were hoping for. But Mm -hmm. sometimes you just need that kind of player because the other younger guys just aren't delivering in the way you'd hoped. And we'll see. I mean, this team is a 25 to 30 win team, probably comfortably, you know, you could add or subtract a couple on either end. It's just going to be another rebuilding year. And you just hope kind of to create a situation where some players are figuring things out. Yeah. It's uh yeah. 31s. I mean, 31s would be seven more than last year. I mean, the Pistons managed to grind their way up to 33. I mean, it's a, it's a significant improvement. And the league will probably be getting a little bit more difficult. I mean, the number of outright tankers this season may be very, maybe low. And I mean, honestly, for my part, I hope that by, I know we're still, goodness, like four months, three months away from the season, even from preseason. But yeah, I'd, I'd rather not find the Pistons find themselves in that sort of stressful end of season, like pray for the team to lose situation. But We'll see, but it's like just it's so difficult to predict what this rotation could look like because any guys doing a little bit better, doing a little bit worse could mean a significant loss of minutes for other players. Yeah, and I think that sometimes these things just sort themselves out because you might see a young player who showed that they're not quite ready for prime time. You might see veterans that are struggling through injury. I could see a situation where they just kind of sit Olenek because they want him to be healthy in an offseason where he might find himself a free agent. Maybe players play themselves off the roster through trades because they were really good or because they just got thrown in because there's obviously no future. It's it's just another sort of year of development and not being quite settled. And that's fine. This is going to be a team that's figuring things out. And then hopefully by this season is all about have you received answers to a couple key questions going into an important offseason where you want to make some of those longer term investments because all these young players are going to be extension eligible maybe some of them get it maybe some of them don't and then also they want to invest some money in free agency before some of those bills come due so yeah it's all Mm -hmm. about figuring out what you need going forward right and yeah, like you said, very much a developmental season. I wouldn't, end, yeah, we both said it wouldn't anticipate it necessarily being much cleaner than last season was. All right, so uh, finally, let's move on to a summer league preview. And uh, we plan to do a longer segment about this, but really, there's not a ton to talk about. It's pretty much we don't know how many minutes the veterans will play, uh, and and beyond that, just go out there and have fun watching the Pistons' young players play, and try not to draw too many conclusions as a result. Yeah, I mean, I think this Pistons team with those veterans, maybe they throw them out there just to kind of make a statement that this is our young core. We want to put them on the floor together, whether that's for one game, it could be for zero games. I think every sort of quote unquote veteran young player on the roster probably plays exactly the same amount. So you're not going to see, you know, Cade plays zero games and then Killian play four. I think it's kind of a statement of purpose. And then Otherwise, for the Pistons, it's all about, you know, Ivy and Duran being these supremely athletic players that can 
get their feet wet and hopefully, you know, just deliver some highlights because that's what summer league is for. Just insane dunks that, you know, trend on Twitter. And that's like the highest possible upside you can have as a young team, because I'm not exactly concerned about them playing for the summer league championship in Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. I don't draw too many conclusions from summer league is always my advice to anyone. It's, it's a very, very different game. Uh, teams don't really play defense. They don't really play a coach style and, and so on and so forth. Some players who go on to be very good will struggle in summer league. Some players who go on to be very bad will do well in summer league. And there's the additional, like, not, I wouldn't say sort of, sort of boring, but the Pistons are completely full at this point. 15 to 15 roster spots. Two, uh, both two-way spots. You'll see Buddy Boheim play. And who knows? He or Brexton Key could be cut loose and replaced with somebody else. But who knows? So, yeah, it's like you said, Sean. Just go out and have fun watching, hopefully, big dunks and, uh, and other fun stuff happen. Uh, all right, folks. So that'll be it for today's episode. And thanks, Sean, for joining the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun to uh, figure out what the hell this team is going to be all about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I feel like I feel like I, I thought it might be a longer conversation about what uh, about how the team is going to come together, but basically, it's like it will shake itself out as it does. Yeah, it's like the Pistons are the shrug emoji personified. Like, if you have the answers, I'm more than wel- welcome to hear it because I don't really have answers about what this team is other than. Yeah. A- collection of interesting parts yeah and your goal in the next several seasons is to go from the shrug emoji to the 100 emoji yeah and yeah. they've got time so just enjoy it while we build yeah uh all right so yeah as i say at the end of every episode uh, if you enjoyed this or if you enjoyed previous episodes consider following the podcast on twitter uh, at to the basket pod and as always folks thanks for listening catch you next time